Welcome to our Twitter space today. I'm Eric Mokaya. I'm based in Sweden and I'm the author of The Transcripts, a weekly newsletter where we cover the key quotes from earnings calls. Uh, and today we are very privileged to have guests, Sam Ro and Alex. I've known them for a while and I would allow them to introduce themselves. So maybe I'll start with Sam. Sam, I know you've made a major move this past quarter. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Then Alex will do that after you. Welcome, Sam. Sure. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me again for uh, this call. I am the writer of Ticker. It's a newsletter on Substack that focuses on the news and data that inform longer term themes in the markets and the economy. I started that in just over a month ago in the middle of October. And before that, I was the writer of the Axios Markets newsletter. And before that, I was at Yahoo Finance, where I co-wrote the Morning Brief newsletter. And if you want to go back to ancient history, I was at Business Insider for a while, where I led the uh, team's coverage of markets. So glad to be here. If anybody is interested in Ticker and what I'm doing, I have the links and URLs are all in my Twitter profile. Perfect. I hope everybody's having a good day so far. My name is Alex Morris. I run the TSOH Investment Research Service. In a nutshell, it's everything that I used to do in my former life as a equities research analyst. I just made it completely available to everybody subscribed to the service. So it's deep dives on individual companies, updates on the companies that I currently own and names on the watch list. Every once in a while, some investment philosophy type discussions and then disclosure of any and all changes before I make them along with the rationale for those changes. So been doing that for the past seven months now, and it's a lot more work than a real job ever was, but I've greatly enjoyed it so far. So thanks for having me as part of this space. Alex's favorite companies include Facebook, and I think we're going to explore a little bit of what the key themes he saw during this quarter. Sam, I know you're more of a journalist, you especially look at the key macro themes and you write a lot about them. So I guess I'll start with you, Sam. Maybe the first thing that we'll talk about is inflation and what you saw there in this quarter, as many companies talked about that. I know the Fed keeps saying that inflation is transitory, but do you think the companies agree with that from what you read from the earnings calls yourself? Yeah, I mean... You know, the whole inflation is transitory is a pretty loaded question. So I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. But on the matter of inflation, you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of the charts where they aggregate the, the, the number of times inflation has been mentioned on the earnings calls. And I believe if it wasn't an all-time record, it was right up there for Q3, similar to Q2. And, you know, I, I think it was probably the case in Q1 as well as, as businesses were you know, providing guidance for what the rest of the year was going to look like. But yeah, I think it's very unambiguous that, you know, the prices for a lot of goods and, you know, labor, all of it's going up. But, you know, again, something that we saw this quarter, and it was actually something that happened last quarter, was as much as all the execs and companies have been screaming about rising costs because of inflation. They were able to deliver basically record high profit margins. And, you know, it's a combination of things, right? You know, efficiencies, you know, bringing in technology to streamline things. And then, of course, raising the prices of the goods and services that these companies sell. So I think that was pretty interesting this quarter, the degree to which companies were saying that their customers were able to absorb these higher prices. And I guess to a certain degree, that's not 
too, too surprising when you do see some of the macro data, right? Especially with the big companies, but companies are in much better financial shape than they were pre-pandemic. Cash levels are higher, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, with the consumers, there's quite a few economists who tried to measure this, but this concept of excess savings, right? The additional amount of savings above trend that consumers saved during the pandemic because they didn't go on vacation last year or they weren't going to restaurants last year. And then not to mention government stimulus checks and, and financial aid and all of that stuff. Consumers balance sheets are in a lot better shape than they were pre-pandemic. And they're also just sitting on a lot of cash. And so I think what we've seen in the last quarter, and it might spill into the next quarter as well, is as much as inflation and rising prices is a sort of undesirable, all the customers of, of these businesses that, that we're following, they're willing to pay because they need those goods and services and, and the equipment for their businesses to run. So I, I thought that was a really interesting sort of dynamic and that can't go on forever, right? Eventually people tap out those excess savings and corporate leverage and financial conditions become a lot tighter. But for now, the time being, at least businesses seem to have a good grasp on what their customers are able to handle in terms of price increases. So that's been really interesting to watch is there's a lot of inflation in the system, but the customers have been able to take those prices. All right. I wanted to ask Alex, maybe you could comment on that. And maybe also in addition to what Satya Nadella said about digital technology being a deflationary force in an inflationary economy. And so from the companies that you follow yourself, have you seen them raise prices and how are the consumers responding to that? Alex? Yeah, I think what Sam said is a really important point, which is a lot of the focus has been on the supply side of the equation, which we know things about the ports and some companies have quantified that like Dollar Tree on their most recent call when they talked about how this was a meaningful hit to their business. I ran the math to try to estimate what they were talking about. And what I got to was something like 200 or 300 bips as a percentage of revenues was the incremental cost that they were looking at, which when you run a business on a manualized basis, but we run a business with mid to high single digit EBIT margins, it's a very massive hit. So we've heard about that side a lot. I think the Sam's point, the demand side is is what's really interesting to me. And we talked about this last time, but I just think we've seen it continue. I look at some of the retailers that I follow, you know, Walmart's two-year stack comps were up 16% in this quarter, still right around all-time highs. That number historically has been more like low to mid-single digits if you look back over the past five years or so. So it's obviously meaningfully above trend and, and Walmart is, at the end of the day, a huge part of their mix is consumables and groceries. It's not people going out and just spending money on discretionary purchases. It's things that people have to have. And you look at other retailers like a, a Home Depot or a Target, where maybe that purchase is a little bit more selective and you see comps are even stronger. I think in the case of both of those companies, the two-year stack was up north 30%. So you're seeing massive demand on that side of the equation, obviously impacts on supply play into that as well. I, I think what we've seen this quarter was more clarity out of companies like Walmart and Costco and the like that are what I kind of view as the 
very well-run best-in-class retailers. And it's interesting to see how effectively they make decisions and find ways to work around these challenges. I think it was on the target call, they made the point that a few years ago, we were having a similar conversation about tariffs. And it just st stuck out to me that this is just a reality of running a business. There's always these, these short-term headwinds of one kind or another. It might be tariffs, it might be cons, inflation, or supply chain issues. It's more to be something else. So I just think it's interesting to see the companies that can really think long-term and, and can navigate their way through these endless issues. And maybe in addition to that, then does that speak a lot about the pricing power of some of these retailers that they're able to actually raise prices and yet the consumers are not in any way kind of reducing the demand for some of their products that they have? Is that something that you would speak about most of the retailers? I know there are a couple of companies have also struggled to actually uh, keep up in terms of prices. They can't raise prices as much as possible. And there's kind of two types. There's those who are able to raise prices and then they don't have a lot of margin pressure. And then there are those who are able to raise prices in that regard. Do you see some companies being affected one way or the other with inflation? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I might even just flip that. And Doug McMillan, who's Walmart's CEO, made an interesting comment on the call. He said, Fighting inflation is in our DNA. Sam Walton loved that fight. So do we. We have a lot of variables to manage to deliver everyday low prices to customers and simultaneously strong financial results for our shareholders when we're using them. Yeah, I think these companies are constantly fighting with navigating the cost of running their business and ensuring that they deliver a good product to customers at the end of the day at a very compelling price point. And if they don't do that all the time, they won't stay in business. So this is just a different version of what they're constantly facing. Now you have some things like right now, Costco called down on their call, hey, we still have limitations on certain things, whether it's toilet paper or bottled water or the like, but they can also react to those things. As they mentioned, you know, we have the financial ability to bring things in early or to order early to mitigate future delays. We have the balance sheet to hold a little bit of excess inventory in the short term when we need to. So it's part of the entire long-term business model, financing strategy of these businesses. If I can just add something there, and I, I think Alex, you know, sort of really nailed it in that this quarter, we learned a whole lot about execution, right? Last quarter, and this is just sort of the, the mix of the companies. I, I feel like in the second quarter, we're hearing a lot of like the early concerns about supply chain issues and the ability to procure goods and maintain inventory and stuff. Whereas with this quarter, there were a lot more earnings calls where the CFOs and the executives were actually talking about the plan that they put into place to execute so that they could have the inventory to sell, right? I mean, when you hear about Walmart and Target and Home Depot's two-year stack comp sales growth, it's one thing to see that as a reflection of consumer demand. But what's also really impressive about that was that all of these stores were able to secure the inventory to actually sell to their customers. I, I thought that that was something that was super interesting um, about this past quarter is while in inventories and supply chains are still a, a big issue and the census data will tell you that inventory levels are still pretty deflated, it seems like there's a higher degree of confidence, especially with some of these, you know, best in class retailers that they are figuring out a way to work through these supply chain issues so that they do have inventory for the holiday season and, and the coming quarters. Yeah, I think just wanted to add to that point, Sam, one interesting, you know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal maybe a month or two ago now that discussed specifically how Walmart was finding ways to work around the major ports that were obviously congested. And it's an example of exactly what Sam's talking about. And we see the net result now when they reported their inventories are up 12% from the year ago period. They're getting prepared for 
where they need to be for the months ahead. So execution is a massively important part. And I think to Sam's point, when we talked about this last quarter, it was almost like the bomb had just hit. And and now over the past three months, we've seen companies effectively make plans and execute against those plans. Agree. I think that's a nice segue also into the, the second topic that you wanted to address, which is a supply chain congestions. A lot of companies, what they say is that mostly demand is not an issue. The issue is actually getting the inventory that they need. And especially the smaller retailers are actually having a difficult time. And the larger ones, as you say, they are able to use other alternatives. They're able to charter flights. They're able to get their inventories on, on time, especially heading into this holiday season. But then there are others who can't be able to actually get the inventory that they need to the uh, consumer on time. So in terms of the companies that you to follow, and there are specific examples where you've seen uh, brilliant ways in which companies have innovated to make sure that they get the in- inventories to their consumer on time. And also, are you wondering perhaps that at some point we see a reversal in the supply chains, the supply chain easing up and then companies stuck with a lot of inventory that is not moving? Yeah, that last question I think is actually really interesting. And let's not forget to talk about that. But regarding supply chain, yeah, just as a continuation of, of what we were just talking about in terms of companies trying to figure stuff out. And that's always the lesson of every earnings season and the aftermath of any kind of crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a financial crisis or a supply chain issue or, or whatever it is, these companies figuring ways around this. I think two examples that I can think of, one of them was on Crocs, Crocs's earnings call and Crocs's earnings announcement, right? So they're one of the, these companies that source their footwork from Vietnam. And because of the resurgence in Delta, there were all these issues with all the footwear companies trying to secure their goods from out of Vietnam. And one of the issues is because those factories are delayed then, and then it gets onto a boat and then it ends up in LA where it's going to get gummed up for weeks again, Crocs just airlifted their supply out of Vietnam. Now, now this isn't like a new thing that companies have just figured out overnight, but obviously flying something across the the world is a lot more expensive than, than shipping it, but it is of course faster. And if you do have the margin to absorb those costs, then maybe you get to make it up on volume and, and Crocs was really successful in the last quarter because, um, there was a lot of demand and the last thing you want to do is, is have a customer show up to your store and not be able to sell them anything. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to, to get someone's attention to your brand. And so it's just a disaster to have to turn them away. So I think that was something that, you know, was really interesting that they were willing to, you know, absorb that cost so that they get that footwear to their, their customers. And they also mentioned that they're investing a small fortune into redesigning their supply chain structure so that air freight becomes a more permanent part of their sort of procurement process. And then another one, I can't remember, I don't know if this was a dream or I read in the paper where they actually said this, but it it seemed kind of surreal to me. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this. But I recall Costco actually saying that in an effort to get their goods to their U.S. stores quicker, they actually chartered or maybe even got a share of a cargo ship or something. I don't know if it's true. I'm pretty sure it is true. I'll have to Google it. But it just sort of speaks to the extent that a lot of these companies will go to make sure 
that their customers are being served. So as much as there's all these efforts to preserve profit margins, it appears to be the case that a lot of there are businesses that will go that extra distance, even if it costs them something so that they can make sure that they have the goods to sell. So I thought that was a really interesting thing in terms of working the supply chain. And then the other thing that you asked Eric about, what is the concern that there's going to be too much supply down the road? I think that's just always going to be a risk, especially now with all these pendulums swinging, like one day there's not enough supply and the next day there could be too much supply. And this is not just like retail and consumer goods, but also industrial products and, and all of these things. I think one thing that's kind of encouraging is that there still seems to be a lot of pent up demand just across the economy that should be able to help clear out what could be inventory that's coming down the road, right? Let's keep in mind that CapEx orders are still at record highs, which means businesses that are creating stuff have plans for more business down the road. And don't forget, there's also 10 million job openings, which is right below its record high. And companies aren't planning to do hiring unless they're planning to use these people for something. So I think, yeah, there's always going to be a risk that there's too much inventory that could potentially be deflationary if, if we want to even go that far. But I, I think one thing that it has been a constant theme this quarter, as well as the last couple of quarters, is that demand is very high and it's expected to persist, at least for the near future. Two things that come to mind for me as we think short term and longer term. Short term, the responses are a lot of the things that you'd expect companies like Dollar Tree or even Disney in, in terms of some of their offerings in the parks mentioned, for example, the idea of smaller pack sizes, which is, you know, someone like Dollar Tree has been been toying with those kind of variables for decades now. So that's just a normal part of the business for them. I think what's interesting sometimes is that you see uh, longer term changes that come about as a result of some of these things. In the case of Dollar Tree, they considered multi-price point. For those of you who don't know, Dollar Tree is the U.S. retailer that sells everything for a dollar, basically everything for a dollar. They've tested multi-price point, effectively selling things for a dollar, 52 bucks, 250, whatever maybe. They've tested that in the past, but they never took it particularly seriously. And I think after what happened here with supply chain, particularly their, their freight costs, they've now really stepped on the gas. So it's just interesting to see how this seemingly short-term impact is, has led to a pretty significant change in terms of how they think about who they are long-term as a business. Another example, it's a little bit different, but I think Airbnb is another case of where you have to deal with impacts to supply and demand. Obviously, it's very different than putting a box of some product on a ship and sending it over from China. But Airbnb introduced certain product changes, specifically a feature called Unflexible, where it allows them to match supply and demand in a way where if someone's flexible on the search, they can you know, meet that need in a way that they had not been able to do previously. So I think it's just another interesting example of how innovation and execution can resolve some of these supply and demand issues over time. I found the quote from Costco, Sam, I think I just put it below the pinned tweet. It's about Costco actually chartering three ocean vessels for the next year to actually move their goods from Asia to the US and Canada. And it's true also Dollar Tree are testing various price points beyond a dollar, which is very interesting. See, they also stick less to pricing items at $1 uh, below. Maybe that's also a good segue to actually discuss a few of the issues, which I've seen some address a lot about labor issues. I know a lot of companies have been saying that it's really hard to secure labor for their stores. A lot of retailers say that. You had an article in your 
newsletter, Sam, that talked about 11 reasons where there are lots of issues uh, at various points in the labor channels. So maybe you can discuss a little bit about that and tell us a bit more about what you wrote there. Yeah, sure. So this is something I wrote for uh, Ticker subscribers last week. And if, if you guys want to back into this, I have the link in my Twitter profile. A, a lot of the labor shortage issues relate to things that I think a lot of, of us have heard of. Things like people who are still concerned about catching and spreading COVID. Childcare issues is a, a huge one that's keeping a lot of parents out of work. Folks retiring. And then not to mention, there's, there's actually this trend where for every couple of people who retire in a given year, there is a percentage of folks who actually return to work and retirements are high and, and the number of people who unretire is a bit depressed. Two more that, that are, you know, really interesting and really jarring to hear about. Immigration is way down and it continues to, to decline year after year. And this is something that began in 2016 during the Trump administration. And oh, and another one that I thought was really interesting, and this is something that economist Diane Swank tweeted a couple of weeks ago. Another thing that's really interesting is the number of people who hold multiple jobs is way down. Millions of people who used to have multiple jobs are no longer sort of in that demographic anymore. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in college, I had two work study jobs and one of them was working part-time at a bar. There's not a lot of people who will work 40 hours a week, you know, as a bartender, but it's a great place to pick up a couple extra hours. And suddenly, if you do find yourself getting higher pay at one of your other jobs and they're giving you more hours because there is this labor shortage, and suddenly you don't have to work two jobs anymore. You can work one job. So... This is among the many things that's sort of creating these pressures for a lot of companies that can't seem to staff their businesses, even though people are coming in to shop like crazy. So it, it's a it's a weird conundrum to to see exactly what happens with this. With stuff like immigration and retirement, these things aren't going to you know turn around very quickly. And then, of course, if you're following the CDC data, we see this fourth wave of infections that's happening in the U.S. And this is happening with cold weather. So you can't expect folks who are concerned about spreading COVID to be coming back anytime soon. But getting back to something that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that's keeping workers on the sideline is because of they have the capacity to. And one of the reasons for this is because of all this money that not everybody, but a decent number of folks were able to save money because they didn't spend a whole lot last year. And then not to mention the fact that a lot of people got stimulus checks and different forms of government aid that give them a little bit of breathing room so that they don't have to rush back to work. This stuff eventually runs out and it's kind of a complicated dynamic, but let's go ahead and throw in the whole fact that there, there's goods inflation, right? It's getting more expensive to pay for the goods and services that you need. And so eventually a lot of this extra savings, the financial cushion that people have accumulated in the last two years eventually goes away, which ends up becoming a source of labor supply for a lot of these companies. So I think this is going to be sort of the big theme to watch in the next couple of months and in the next maybe two quarters of earnings to see to what degree companies complain less about labor. And of course, this is going to show up in, in monthly jobs reports. But eventually, these folks who 
have been sitting on the sideline of the workforce. Maybe not all of them, but at least some of them are going to start coming back because they're going to have to start earning money again. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add to that other than, and this is only tangentially related and it's a bit anecdotal, but I, I've been interested to see how some of these tech companies who are the larger tech companies who are, they, they had a perception as being capital light and did not need many people to run the businesses. And I just think we've seen that kind of go away over time, obviously in terms of their CapEx spend, but also in terms of their headcount. I'm looking at Facebook right now, a decade ago, they had roughly 5,000 people working at the company. Based on the guidance they gave last quarter for 2022, they'll be closer to 90,000 people next year. So it's just interesting to think some of these companies where you might not think that they would employ a lot of people, they're needing a much larger workforce than many may have anticipated. So that's only 90,000 jobs, but there's a lot more companies than just Facebook who have similar demands in their business. So I just think that's interesting to keep an eye on as well. Definitely. I sourced a few thoughts from many uh, people on FinTweet. And one of the thoughts was actually about Twitter itself scaling up in terms of hiring in the next quarter or so, which may affect the 2022 earnings. So it may be able to be reflected this year. It actually be reflected more next year, which may actually be one of the reasons why the stock is trading very low as it is currently. So I think we've gone through half an hour of discussing maybe the macro topics. I would want to open up more to very specific things that you may have noticed, which may be unique to you. And at this point, I think I'll start with Alex, uh, who follows uh, Facebook a lot and you follow a lot of these companies. Maybe you can tell us a, a bit about what you saw, which are unique points that you've been following for a while. Sure. Well, if we're starting with Facebook, there's like 10 different big things that we could talk about. You know, the first one, I guess, at a high level is that the core business by my read continues to do very well. They have a massive number of users across their platforms and the ability to deliver effective ads enables them to generate significant increases in ARPU as well, because there's high demand for those impressions. So their two-year stack growth, I believe, I mean, I'm getting now, it was either 60 or 70%, but that's still obviously a very strong growth rate for a business that has seen its, its revenue base increase multiple times over the past handful of years. So that's very impressive. Now they're dealing with the impact of Apple's ATT implementation, which if people are interested in learning a lot more about that topic, I highly recommend the podcast that Ben Thompson did with Eric Siepert, I believe is his name. He's very thoughtful on online advertising in the whole industry. It's definitely worth listening to. But yeah, I think this quarter we saw Snap came out with their results and the stock got pummeled. And I think effectively what happened is they did a really bad job of communicating with the investment community about the short-term impact from ATT. And when Facebook's results came out, they were impacted as well, but they did a better job of kind of effectively with investors about what the impact might be. And and they also came out and laid out their plans for how to at least try to address it. There's a big problem here in terms of finding ways to close that loop between targeting and attribution, which is really what direct response advertising is dependent upon. So there's a lot happening in the business and it's getting to a size where it's not going to increase the user base double digit growth rates in perpetuity because they're going to round of people on earth eventually. But they're in a very strong spot in a lot of ways. Obviously, the really big announcement was about their metaverse efforts and the name change. And they said that their investments in FRL would be a $10 billion hit to operating income this year, year which is a very big number and much bigger than people had kind of guessed based on what they had said previously. I don't have a ton 
to say about, I mean, I wrote an article about it, so I, I tried to put my thoughts as clearly as possible in that piece. I, obviously it's incredibly early, but I, I think this idea of presence in digital spaces and just this where being, this is where the world is going to me, it seems intuitive and it almost seems inevitable over a long enough period of time. I think it was interesting, the, the guy who runs Microsoft's Microsoft 365 business, he said recently, he was talking about Microsoft specifically, but he said, the first digital revolution of ours was essentially about the digitization of paperwork. This next digital transformation that we're all going through is about the digitization of space and time. And I, I, I think that idea makes a lot of sense. So it's incredibly early, but I think Zuck's a visionary in a lot of ways, and he has the balance sheet and the income statement to invest aggressively and, and the voting shares as well. That's also very important, but this will be an interesting development to watch over the course of the next five, 10 years, maybe longer. Sam, any thoughts on the metaverse, especially just on big tech, uh, any of those companies? Because one of the things that we noted in the transcript about big tech, uh, especially the social media companies saying that they're seeing the fact that their supply chain issues are affecting some of the company's ability to actually spend on ads. Some of the companies noted that they're seeing some other companies reducing their ad spend because of supply chain issues. And also an impact from some of the companies from Apple's concerns about privacy. It's impacting the ability of some of the social media companies to be able to assess the impact of ads. And that has actually also made some of the companies to actually reduce their spending in that regard. Maybe Sam, you could tell us a little bit about any thoughts that you may have on, on tech and big tech and metaverse and all those idea fit. Yeah, I think it was Snapchat that had that, the headline that they were saying ad spend decline because of, of, of businesses that said, well, if we don't have the inventory to sell any of this stuff, then why are we trying to advertise so hard to draw people into our stores and our online portals and stuff to, to look at goods that they can't order anyways. So may, maybe that explains a little bit of, of, of why companies were able to, you know, save a little bit on their profit margins. I, I don't know if I really buy that it's going to move the needle by that much. But that's an area that's very sort of personal to me. I mean, if, if anything, it was more personal before, but it's a little bit less now. The last 15 years, I was working at news websites where it was all free and it all depended on companies being able to spend on digital advertising so that we could monetize our free content. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm, that's going to be something that persists. But regarding the metaverse, though, I think it's just really interesting. It's something that's fun to poke around and, and joke about and stuff. And I'm not completely sure it completely displaces everything that we do in terms of work and, and interact with, with each other, but I can certainly see it having a huge impact on how we do a lot of the work that we do, especially as companies try to figure out ways to increasingly streamline their businesses and cut costs and stuff. There's going to have to be a way that companies save in other areas. And this is also going to be something that if this is a source of cost savings, this is going to be something that offsets something where costs might eventually rise in the near future. I think one thing that we have learned during the pandemic is that these extremely efficient supply chains and just-in-time delivery and all this stuff, while really efficient, really cost-effective and all this stuff, it's incredibly fragile. And so you see silly things like Costco getting into the boating business because they're trying to make their supply chains more robust, but that's going to cost something and they're going to have to figure out how to save elsewhere. 
And so maybe they cut their corporate real estate in half and, and do all of their meetings in the metaverse or whatever. But I, I think it's something to not sort of laugh away because I think it could be very, something that does actually have a huge impact. My question, maybe Alex, you can speak to this or because I'm just really not sort of that well versed in this. But my question is what's stopping Microsoft from having a better metaverse or maybe Slack convert Slack into, you know, we saw, we saw Netflix pivot from DVDs to streaming. What's going to stop Slack from change, going from chat to this metaverse kind of experience from a competitive standpoint, I don't know exactly where I would be putting my money in terms of betting on the metaverse, but I, I do think it's something that will be a bigger part of our lives much sooner than we think. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really fair question. It's, and it's one that Facebook shareholders and meta shareholders like myself should really, really be asking themselves. I think, um, I, I pitch this every time I talk anywhere, but that Penn Thompson's newsletter is a must read for anybody who's interested in technology generally. And he did a really good podcast basically on this exact topic where he broke down how he sees the competitive landscape between four key players, one being startups of some kind, two being Apple, three being Meta, and four being Microsoft. And the point that he made that really resonated with me is this idea of Microsoft Teams as kind of the key layer of what Microsoft brings to the table. And this idea that the adoption of AR, VR, whatever you want to call it, for lack of a better term, is more likely to mirror what happened with PCs where adoption started in the workplace, started in the enterprise and found its way into the home, as opposed to what we saw in mobile, where people essentially already had a phone in their pocket. We just went from a phone that did nothing besides phone calls and text messages, and now it does whatever you could possibly want it to do. So that was more of a consumer-driven adoption as opposed to a kind of an enterprise-driven adoption where the use case and the price point for the technology is going to be find its best use at least at the start in terms of enterprise applications. So his argument at the end of the day is that the the front runner in this race is actually Microsoft. You know, I don't want to misquote him, but I think his addendum to that was Facebook is second given who Mark Zuckerberg is and given the resources that he has at his disposal. So it'd be very interesting to watch, but yeah, I think it's incredibly early and maybe a more tangible thing to talk about in tech is kind of this just idea of digitization generally. Satya Nadella, who's Microsoft CEO, he said about a year ago that over the next decade, they think that technology spending as a percentage of GDP is going to double. And just looking at the results as of late, it's hilarious. I think we talked about this last time as well, but you know, these companies just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the growth rates that they're putting up in some cases have only accelerated. They're not even slowing down. Microsoft's most recent quarter, their cloud business revenues were up mid thirties year over year. It's at a run rate north of $80 billion, which is three times larger than it was three years ago. And it now accounts for, for nearly half the business. And just to put that in context, they only ever set a financial goal for their cloud business back in 2015, with this target of $20 billion run rate revenues by FYAP. So we're 4X that level, that level now. It's half their business and it's growing mid 30s. So just crazy. And AWS results, very similar run rate, north of 60 billion and growth last quarter after 30s. So just think we're witnessing some very large long-term structural trends and they're global trends. And what that means is that for a certain number of companies, there are astounding results currently being reported. 
pretty incredible actually to look at some of the companies and the kind of results they reported this quarter. And I think about the metaverse, maybe two other comments there. I think listening to Zuckerberg, what he said was they're not going to build the metaverse alone. So they're going to be multiple players in this space. They made me feel a weakness in the end, but I think at the beginning, a lot of companies have a very high interest in this space. And there's going to be a lot of collaboration needed to build and to take advantage of the opportunities in this space. I think that's one key thing that came about. But also in terms of Facebook changing its name to Meta, I think one of the things that actually stood out for me is that Facebook, I think in the space of one quarter, just turned the conversation about Metaverse from being very niche to actually being mainstream. And now everyone is talking about it a lot more. And there are companies which have been playing in this space for a while. I think listening to a company like Roblox, they've been doing it for a while. Uh, when I listened to NVIDIA's call, they also have been doing it for a while. In fact, theirs is called the Omnibus. So I think there are also companies which are playing this space. So if you're very interested, I think there are, there are a couple of companies that like those that you can follow Roblox, uh, Facebook now, Meta, and of course also Tencent. They had very many quotes in this space. Maybe turning to one more thing that I wanted to hear, maybe more from Alex, is about Netflix and the Squid Game. I think this was a stunning quarter. Listening in on the earnings call or reading the earnings transcript, you could tell that they were actually very surprised that Squid Game took off in the way in which it did. Uh, and then I think Disney also had quite a tough, I mean, they are, it's finding it a bit tough in the Disney Plus space. Uh, they've hit 118 million subscribers on Disney Plus. Uh, so maybe I wanted to hear your thoughts on those two companies and whatever else you saw in that space of streaming services. Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with the fun one. Yeah, Netflix released Squid Game, which I'm sure everybody knows. They released it in mid-September. I wrote about this and it's kind of funny that the, the show had been rejected for about a decade by local studios in South Korea and then Netflix's local content team there. They're signed a deal with the writer and director in 2019. So yeah, they released the show and it built somewhat slowly, but it's obviously become a huge phenomenon since then. And I think the number they gave on the call was 142 million member households had watched it, I believe. And that was still relatively early into all this. So that number is definitely north of 150 million. And just to put that in context, that's three times larger than the total population of South Korea. And it, it was been a top program in nearly 100 countries around the world for Netflix. I've been somewhat doubtful about the ability of content, video content to really travel globally and to have a big impact on engagement, user retention, art booze, all, all the important metrics. And I think this isn't the first time that Netflix has had a successful show like this that that traveled borders in a big way. But I think the big knock on that idea, that thesis that I had previously, and as you're thinking about Netflix's business long-term and you think about global scale, if that fact is true, it's incredibly important to the business. In terms of Disney, it's funny to think that six months ago, people were having a conversation about Netflix and its inability to grow and add subscribers and whether or not they'd kind of hit a wall. And well, that narrative has since changed. And Disney was somewhat able to avoid that earlier this year. I think in hindsight with clear data, we can see that that was really driven by these very low ARPU Disney plus Hotstar subs, primarily in countries like India. So how you think about that obviously is important, but they've hit a bit of a snag in the short term and 
this is kind of the reality of running a DTC business and really learning the ropes. And they've been impacted by their ability to get content to the services as a result of COVID. The other was obviously delays associated with that. So they won't really hit their stride in terms of the content they need till six to nine months from now. And a period like this also presents questions to management. I, I kind of wrote in the introduction to my Disney article that's going to come out Monday. Sometimes when you report earnings or report some news as a company, the market reacts a certain way. And the right thing to do is just disregard it as short-term noise and the market will do what it does. I think other times the market reacts a certain way and people have questions about your strategy and you really should consider effectively what they're saying to the people who are selling the stock and really pushing the price down. I, I think this is probably a case where Disney really needs to think about the effectiveness of having multiple services as opposed to consolidating it all into a single app, kind of an all you can eat model that Netflix has utilized. Disney's done the same thing even in, in, in markets like throughout Europe or in Canada, they have Disney Plus with the star tile built into the offering. And for stars, basically just call it an equivalent of something like Google. It's a more general entertainment offering that they decided to consolidate into the single app. So I think they're, they're seeing that the strategy they currently have in a market like the United States maybe needs to evolve a bit in order to more effectively you know, service the needs of the business. So it's still incredibly early. They launched Disney Plus two years ago now. Expectations at the time were for something like 60 to 90 million subs globally in, in five years. And, you know, as I mentioned about the Hotstar subs, there's probably some adjustment due to that number for apples to apples comparison. But the reality is if you look at it today from where you thought they might end up two years ago, they basically knocked the ball out of the park. So as always in business, you need to adjust the realities on the ground at the time you're making the decision. And I think in this case, Disney needs to do that. And I ultimately think they will do that. Thank you, Alex, for that. I think from my readings of the transcripts of those two companies, Disney and Netflix, I would say mostly, especially about Disney, that they're going to spend a lot on CapEx in the next year to try and get more content, especially on Disney+. Plus. So it's going to be a challenging year, maybe short-term challenges, but the long term is very good. They have a very ambitious goal of getting to around, I think, 200 million plus subs by 2024. I'm pretty sure that they're capable of that. So we'll keep watching on that space. So maybe I want to turn to Sam. We had an article titled Counterintuitive Trend That Surprised Wall Street. So in that same regard, I wanted to ask you what kind of things surprised you in Q3 from the earnings of the companies that you followed generally, or maybe key themes that actually surprised you. And the same for Alex then. That article related to how companies were able to maintain their profit margins at near record levels. And I know that we sort of, you, you read a lot and you hear a lot on CNBC and Bloomberg and a lot increasingly about how companies have this pricing power. And when you hear about it at this high level, it's like, okay, that's interesting. But I thought one call from earlier this week, I thought was extremely interesting. And that was the TJX companies. And if you guys aren't familiar, TJX is the parent company of TJ Maxx and Marshalls. And growing up, this is where I did all of my shopping because I, I didn't have the job that could pay for the actual nice clothes and my parents weren't giving me shit for allowance. So if I wanted to try to get something that was like a decent brand, but affordable, you went to TJ Maxx and you went to Marshalls because that's where Polo and Matica and Levi's when they had too much inventory, it gets sent to these stores, it gets marked down by 50% and suddenly you look cool in, in middle school or high school. All the places that you would think that would have a little, that would struggle a little bit with inflation or inventory or costs or anything, 
you would think that TJ Maxx might have an issue there, but I believe their quote was that they were, I guess, strategically raising prices. And the quote was, there was quote, no pushback from the customers. So this company that sells consumer goods to a consumer that knows inflation is happening, but is specifically targeting people in lower income demographics is raising prices and people are taking it. They are still buying these goods. So I think that speaks to sort of how crazy things are in the world right now with both sentiment being very sour because of inflation being high. And yet every company, including discounters, are actually raising prices and they're still being able to op send off those costs to their customers. So I think that was one thing that just sort of really stuck out to me because this is not some fluke that pricing power is just sort of happening very quietly. But yeah, even discounters are are raising prices. I, I think that was probably the biggest surprise to me. And, and again, I think, you know, looking out into the next quarter, the question is going to be to what degree pricing continues to stick. If it continues, I think I would be surprised again. And if profit margins continue to be at record levels, I, I would be surprised again. But if there's anything the last two quarters have taught us is, is to not be surprised by that kind of thing. One thing that actually something Alex mentioned in passing that, you know, Eric, I think um, you mentioned in, in one of the, I don't know, maybe in a DM or something, was in this quarter, investors and traders really punished companies that missed expectations more so than considerably more. And I, I think you had a chart and maybe you can share this, that I think JP Morgan or, or, or someone did this analysis, but I think in like a given quarter, when a company misses on earnings, you see an, yeah, so I'm looking at this, there's like an average sell-off of about 1.7%. I believe it's the, the relative one day performance relative to, I guess the S and P you typically see maybe about a 1% sell-off when you miss on earnings. In Q3, the sell-off was, the underperformance was 4.3%. So companies were getting smoked for falling short of expectations. And I think this is something to watch as, or to sort of to be mindful of as an investor who might be thinking about making tactical tweaks to their portfolios or making changes before the year is over. I'm not making any kind of recommendation or anything here. But to me, the way I interpret what's going on right now is, God, I, I hate to use this phrase, but this is telling me that the market is generally sort of getting to that point where you could call it price to perfection, right? Where you have to either meet expectations or actually beating expectations tends to be what the market actually expects. But if you're falling short of expectations, your stock is going to get dinged. So I think that is something to, you know, certainly be mindful of as an investor, as you think about your positions. Yeah. I don't know if I have anything in particular to shout out from this quarter that really surprised me outside of probably just broadly speaking, it's amazing to think about what we just lived through over the past, I guess, 24 months to see a business and it's a younger business and it has some structural tailwinds and it's growing anyway. So it's, it's kind of cherry picked, but a business like Airbnb, where the bookings on the platform this past quarter are down by a pretty immaterial amount relative to where they were pre-pandemic. I mean, just 
the ability of the economy to, to weather a lot of these issues and to adjust and to find a way forward is just amazing. And obviously, you know, the economy is just the accumulation of all individual people and companies and all the decisions they make, the investments they make, et cetera. So I've just been amazed with a lot of the, the results that I've seen from a lot of the companies that I've followed. It's really something. Maybe the one other one that wasn't from an earnings call, but I know you'll appreciate this, is probably Comcast paying $2.7 billion to keep the Premier League rights in the U.S., where the prior deal had a value over the life of the contract of a comparable uh, length of time. That was a billion dollars. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around how they justified paying for that. And also the decision that they announced earlier this year, they're shutting down NBC Sports, which for those who don't know, that's the channel where they feature the vast majority of their EPL rights. So I don't really know how to read into what they're doing there, but I found that a bit mind-blowing. So maybe that could be my answer. Yeah. In addition to that, I think what I saw from the Netflix earnings call is that they say that a lot of traditional broadcasters are trying to bank on live sports as the way to actually save themselves from cord cutting. And I think the streaming companies are also eyeing this piece of live sports to actually also boost their viewership. It's pretty interesting that they're paying that much. Uh, but I'm told if you put that in context in the U.S., that's actually very small compared to what other companies pay for the rights for, say, baseball or basketball and all. I'm not so sure. I, don't, I, I just saw someone comment below the tweet that you had. Is that true, Alex? Yeah, I mean, some of the rights are incredibly expensive, particularly the NFL. And obviously, you're getting a lot less tonnage in terms of the amount of games. The Premier League has, I think it's 300 games, 300, 300 something games in a season, something crazy like that. So if you're paying up for, like, for example, ES, ESPN's package for Monday Night Football, they're only getting whatever it is, 15 games a year or whatever it may be. So, uh, yeah, it's a huge price tag. It'll, th that's a good point, though. I, I think we're starting to get to a place where, the role of sports, and I guess you could say live programming generally, stuff like news, and how it interacts with some of these G2C SVOD services. It, it's going to be very interesting to see because it has a place and it's uh, very big in terms of retention and engagement. So I think Netflix, they've said for years that they don't think that their next best dollar is spent acquiring sports rights. And I think the reasons they've laid out are very logical. And I think it makes sense. That said, they saw something with the F1 series that they had. And I don't know if it means that they'd be interested in looking at buying a league like Formula One or, or how they would look to get more involved. Maybe it's just more shows like the F1 series that they had, but it's a very interesting landscape. It's going to evolve a lot over the next couple of years. Yeah, they do have a really good quote about the opportunity cost, I think. And that's what makes them, they don't see value in live sports, but Come on, come to think of it, imagine being able to just log into Netflix and being able to watch all your favorite sports in one space, and then you just pay one subscription for all of the games and for all the sports. It can be pretty impressive, but of course the rights would be very expensive. I know like Formula One had their own exclusive channel where you can pay monthly subscription and, and get access to all of these channels. But that, that's pretty interesting, whatever it has in that space. I know eSports is also having issues with FIFA uh, in that regard. Also, they want to actually have the product itself, FIFA, not associated with FIFA itself because FIFA wants them to pay very high cost for that. So perhaps uh, this is towards the tail end of our talk, talk today. Maybe I would ask uh, one more question because this is the last 
kind of earnings call for the year uh, because the next earnings season is next year, early next year. So perhaps you could tell us what you'll be watching over this space until next year. And maybe also you can plug in your various sub stacks and also tell listeners where can, they can find you and maybe some closing comments. And you can tell us where readers can also find you. What are you watching and what should the listeners and readers be looking at? And also where can they find you? Sure. Let me start by saying thanks for putting this together again. I think it's an enjoyable conversation. I always like hearing Sam's point of view on things. Um, I'm going to take them in reverse order real quick. So my service is the TSOH Investment Research Service. It's on Substack. You can find it from my Twitter page, Twitter bio. I have an article coming out in two weeks where, and it, it'll be available to free subs and pay subs available to everybody, where I'm going to basically lay out my investment thesis. And the reason why I wrote the article is because I started investing in, I believe it was 2007. And over the course of the past 10 plus years, a lot of the things that I believe fundamentally have not changed in a big way, but how I apply that in terms of my investment process has evolved a bit. So I think it's worthwhile for me to put that on paper. One, for prospective subscribers or current subscribers to see whether or not it aligns with their own view of the world. And I also thought it might be helpful for me to write it down just so I could have it very clearly stated somewhere. So the point of me saying that is, as I'm going to outline in that article in more detail, obviously, I'm a long-term investor who looks to high-quality businesses and typically fairly concentrated positions, something like five to 15 positions total with the top handful being the majority of the portfolio. I say that because when I listen to the next rounds of earnings calls, just as I do with every set of earnings calls, I'm looking for a handful of things. I want clarity and vision from management. I want clear explanations for the things that are not going well. I want a real reason to believe that the people that I've entrusted with my capital to run these companies have the same long-term goals as I do in terms of maximizing the first share value of the business, but also ensuring the happiness and satisfaction of all stakeholders to some degree. And also that they're continuing to move forward in a way that I think makes sense. So those are the things that I'll be listening for and we'll see how that goes. Hopefully not too many surprises. It sounded like people had a lot of surprises in Q3. I think I luckily missed a good amount of those, generally speaking, but that might just mean I have them coming in Q4. So I'll keep my fingers crossed. Thanks again for having me. And it's called The Science of Hitting. You forgot to plug the name, the name. <laughs> I, I forgot my name, damn it. Yeah, Science of Hitting. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Yeah, likewise. It's great to hear from Alex and, and Eric. Thanks for, for setting this up. It's great hearing from Alex because a long time ago, I, I spent a lot of time analyzing equities at that company level. So it's good to know that there are still people who really take great care when doing that. Ticker, the newsletter that I write, the link is in my Twitter profile, really focuses on sort of the macro themes, the big picture sort of backdrop that the companies that Alex covers is, is, is operating in. And I think one of the things to, to look out for, and this is something that I'm going to be writing about on my Sunday issue. And if you guys want to check that out, this is the preview of, of what that's going to look like. And my Sunday issues are always free. So that goes out every Sunday weekly. But I think the big thing to watch right now, and I think it's super bullish is to see what companies are doing with inventory and specifically the inventory rebuild. This is not even about the degree to which companies are converting this into to sales and revenue. We know that the demand is pretty robust, but even if things go sideways a little bit, companies are still having to restock their stock rooms. And a lot of the sales and earnings beats that we've heard about in the last two quarters has been because companies have been just depleting the, the hell out of their, their inventories. 
And there's a lot of nuance to this too. Keep in mind that when, when companies have a lot of inventories, that means they also have to do something about clearing this stuff out, which means clearance sales, markdowns, promotional pricing, and all of this stuff. And that has just not been happening as much as it used to in, in the last couple of quarters. And this actually sort of feeds into a lot of these inflation stories. One of the reasons why my jeans are so expensive this year isn't so much because the price went up, but you know, TJ Maxx didn't have them on markdown this year. So this whole story about inventory and companies getting their in inventories back to those sort of normal levels, I think ends up becoming an incredibly bullish story for the economy. And again, this is not just retailers, capital equipment. I mean, we know every, we know about tech companies and chip suppliers and of course the auto companies as the supply chains do loosen up and, and they are loosening up. I mean, as much as they're still backed up and you hear about these bottlenecks, when you do look at the data, it turns out that the port of LA is, is processing more goods this year than they were last year, even though it looks worse now it's because of all this demand. So I think it's going to be interesting to see these conversations about inventory. It's going to be incredibly, incredibly boring conversations. It's the kind of stuff that happens in the middle of the Q&A as analysts are trying to tweak their models and adjust how they analyze a company's balance sheets. But I think this inventory conversation is going to be really interesting because the more companies talk about how they're right-sizing their inventories in a expansionary way, that is someone else's business. And that also is going to translate into a huge tailwind for stuff like GDP. So keep an eye on inventories. My newsletter is called Ticker. That's T-K-E-R. And you can find that at ticker.co. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure. I religiously read your newsletters every time they come to my inbox. So it's really a pleasure to come and listen to you. I love your writings. So I enjoy them a lot and share them with friends as much as I can. It's always nice also to host this, our second uh, quarterly review. So we'll be doing another one again early next year. So in the meantime, it's good to tell our listeners. I just posted the links to Sam and Alex various newsletters. You can just subscribe to them and follow them. We also have our newsletter, the transcript, where we read earnings called transcripts and summarize the key thoughts and key quotes that can also be of impact to your portfolio. So subscribe to us at the transcript.substack.com. The key themes which you've been following, it's caught. It was not able to join today. It's mostly, we're also looking at supply chains. We're trying to see when will they turn. And we're also looking at inventories, as Sam says also, if they're also going to pile up once the supply chain situation isn't up. But also we're looking at various other aspects, like we track quarter to quarter and see what a company's saying. And we try to analyze the key tips and trends for you and to distill that in our weekly newsletter. So do follow us and we hope that we can also do another one like this early next year. In the meantime, we wish you happy holidays and see you next year. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us today.